morning, everyone. Ooh. It's good to see everybody. Did you notice a theme in the praise and worship today? If you noticed, and it was just really thankful for the guys and the gals and the team that uh, lead us in praise and worship, there was a theme, a constant theme that seemed to be with every song that they sang. It revolved around Christ for us, the lamb that was slain, his faithfulness, his righteousness for us, his blood for us. And that just blessed me so much because, see, I have, I don't know, they've shown it in movies and it's a real thing, but I can't remember the name of the movie right now, but there was a character where he had a 10-second memory where after 10 seconds he'd forget everything and start back over again. And that's, that's like me. That, I need to hear the gospel all the time because I have a 10-second memory and I'm off doing something else or forgetting or whatever, forgetting about his faithfulness, forgetting about his hold of me. I go into despair and I'm immediately back where I need to be. And the good news is, no matter how many times that I need to be reminded of what Christ has done for me, he gladly tells me again and again and again. He's not like us. He doesn't say, oh, I already told you. Oh, this is how many times have I told you already? Every time he gladly reminds us again, you're mine. I died for you. You belong to me. Bank on my promises. And that is, I need that. And that's why I get so kind of passionate about it because I need it so much. I need to know that when I am too weak to hold on to Christ, he has promised to hold on to me. And I need that. Maybe like me. And that's why I share some of the stuff, some of the things that I go through. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. The scripture passage that we'll be reading in today is Acts chapter 4, starting with verse 1 through 22. And the title of my message today is, It's a Trap. And I'm a a nerd, y'all. And so when I hear... Uh, the phrase, it's a trap, my mind immediately goes to Star Wars and to a character that's in it. His name is Admiral Akbar. And there's a scene in the movie where their fleet is caught in a trap from the Empire, and he turns around, looks at the screen, and he just yells, it's a trap. And so in pop culture, or okay, maybe it's not popular culture, but in Star Wars culture, you say it's a trap, and you know what people are talking about. So my apologies if that analogy falls short of you, but uh, if you remember that phrase, I promise it'll tie in later. Yeah, it's a trap. And it's funny because I've seen pictures where uh, a coffee shop would have a picture of his sign on the outside and it would say, it's a frap. Or uh, I've seen uh, pest control companies sell his picture and say, it's a trap. You know, and there's other things that they've used to use words that rhymes with trap, but I won't get into that. Um, So we're continuing in this series that I've been on called After Easter, and we've started After Easter. We went through the Ascension, we we went through the Resurrection, went through the Ascension, went to the disciples in the room, went to the Emmaus Road, and last week we went to we went through Pentecost, and then last week we last time I spoke we went through Acts chapter three, and so I'm picking up where we left off, and I'm continuing our our path through through After Easter because it's again I love history. I'm a history nut and. This stuff is fascinating, and it's so good. It's so good, y'all. And there are three things that I want to address that I believe this passage addresses. 
that addresses things that I have struggled with, that I have been plagued with as a Christian growing up. And I believe that this passage provides comforting answers to these things. Maybe you've been plagued like me on these same issues that I have. If you did not grow up as a Christian, this message still applies to you. I pray that the Lord can use this message to spare you from any additional anxiety that from birth Christians like me may have experienced. The thought that that is possible, that one whom Christ died for and has faith in Jesus ever has any spiritual anxiety over their salvation. It is one thing for the devil to place those kind of doubts in us. And it is another thing for the individual on their own to have doubts of their salvation. But for another person to place irrelevant guilt, shame, doubt into the child of God due to their lack of spiritual growth or lack of performance as a reason for the possibility that they are not really saved is evil. Yet so many Christians do it in their words and in their preaching. How many of us have rolled our eyes and guffawed whenever a public figure or the known riffraff professes faith in Christ as their only hope? Yeah, right, but does he really believe? We wonder. Sure, he says that, sure she says that she is saved and placed her hope in Christ, but does she live like it? We think. And then the standard that we would use to compare, to decide if they were in the faith, was how we are living like a Christian should. We threw out that standard. Oh, yeah, she says she's a Christian, but I know she living the Christian life like me. We think. What arrogance. What pride. What self-righteous, whitewashed tombs we are when the, that thought comes to our mind. I don't know if y'all saw it recently, but there's an actor. His name's Chris Pratt. And he's, he's, he's known in a lot of different movies and whatnot. And he had this opportunity to speak in an awards ceremony. And he, was, he gave nine rules of Chris Pratt. I'm not going to read them all right now. But there were was, there was certain things that he said. Because he's a little kooky and his, his humor is a little there. So it's not for everybody. I laughed. Um, but he, he said some things that struck me. One of the things he said was, and, and I'm going to misquote him. So just I'm going off of memory here. He said that we have been given grace and we need to never forget that it was paid for by someone else's blood. Now, when I hear that, especially in a public setting, that excites me because and whether or not everyone in the room got what he was talking about, I knew what Chris Pratt was talking about. And that excited me, and that encouraged me. And that was like, look, there's someone is saying it. And, 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 then, and then I saw this, you know, back and forth, this, oh, is he really a Christian? Look at what the stuff he does and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, did you even hear what he just said? He preached a better sermon than most pastors did in three, five minutes on an average Sunday because he pointed to Christ, his blood for us. Many use the, guilt, the methods of guilt, shame, terror, fear, compulsion to convert the lost to Christianity. That's not even how Christianity works. Maybe you are like me and have wrung your hands over the same things before. And the three things I mentioned that I believe this passage helps is, or it's helped me and maybe it'll help you too, is one, the Bible says that the gospel is offensive. But I'm not sure I have ever been offended by the gospel. If I've not 
been ever been offended by the gospel, am I hearing it correctly if I'm not offended by it? Two, how do I not be lukewarm without being fake about it? Number three, how can I know, how can I know that I know that I am saved? Those have been, especially that last one, that's really bothered me my whole life. And I've been set free from that fear. Even though I doubt it and I question it, and sometimes I, I go back to the Lord and it's the same answer every time. And I believe this passage will help comfort y'all as much as it's comforted me. So the passage we are reading today is Acts 4, 1 through 22, and we read, As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the commander of the temple guard, and the Sadducees approached them. And read Ryan right quick. They just healed the lame man at the temple. Everyone's freaking out. Everyone's running, hey, this guy who's been lame for over 40 plus years can now walk. And G Peter and John told everyone that the way that this happened was through the name of Jesus. And then everybody started listening to him and it disrupted the entire service of the temple. Everyone's running to hear and listen what Peter and John have to say and they're leaving the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders to go listen to Peter and John. So the priests, the commander of the temple guard, and the Sadducees approached them. They were very upset because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead in connection with Jesus. That's why they're mad. <laughs> Did you catch that? They're very upset because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection from the dead in connection with Jesus. They arrested them and put them in jail until the next day because it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men increased to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the experts in the law assembled in Jerusalem. Everybody came. Everybody who had any kind of authority that was within walking distance that day were there. Because they wanted to be there for a specific reason. With Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the rest of the high priest's family. And they made Peter and John stand in front of them. Wow. So this, here's this audience, and here's Peter and John standing right there. While they're all looking at them. They began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we are being questioned today for a kind act that was done for the lame man as to how this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that it was by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man stands before you healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and found out that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were astonished and took note of the fact that these men had been with Jesus. How do they know that they had been with Jesus? They're saying the same things that Jesus did. They're teaching the same stuff that got Jesus killed in the first place. But since they saw the man who had been healed standing there with them, they could not say anything in reply. After they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they discussed the matter among themselves. They asked, what should we do with these men? 
To be sure, it is evident to all who live in Jerusalem that a miraculous sign has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. However, in order that this may spread no further among the people, let us give them a strict warning not to speak any longer to anyone in this name. Then they summoned them and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Decide whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And they had threatened them further, then they let them go. They found no way to punish them because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this miraculous sign of healing was performed for it was over 40 years old. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Amen. Peter and John are on trial for an act of kindness. <laughs> that's, what they, that, that's what they're on trial for. For, for, for. for healing a man in the name of Jesus. That's, and for the rest of what they were preaching. The resurrection from the dead in Jesus' name. That alone should tell you all you need to know about what is going on in the theological tug of war and power struggle that the religious are having. We already went over what happened last time. It was a scene after the lame man was healed. Everyone's routine day just got turned upside down. I found the following in a commentary that I wanted to share with you all about what is going on in Acts 4. Now, quote, It was impossible for the old enemies of the Lord to remain idle under the circumstances. The present occasion offered them a welcome chance to interfere and to hinder the activity of the apostles. Peter had not yet finished his discourse to the people, and John also was addressing some part of the multitude when a body of armed men came rushing across the court. There were the priests, angry no doubt because the people had disregarded the evening sacrifice and the hour of incense offering in their astonishment over the healing of the lame man. There was the captain of the temple, the man of the temple mount, who had charge of the priests and Levites that guarded the temple and its surroundings, acting also as police for the grounds. Nothing gets the keepers and promoters of Antichrist works righteousness upset like sinners rejoicing over the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. There is no such thing as cheap grace. Grace isn't cheap, it's free. You can't pay for grace. If you could pay for grace, then it's not grace. We're not talking about grace anymore. If you can buy it, grace is a gift, a free gift given to you because God loves you. Their rituals, their sacrifices, their traditions, what they had hope in and what was the evidence of their righteousness was being ignored and interest fell on these apostles and in Jesus as their hope. The guy who and the idea of that they thought that they had been rid of. Make no mistake, the world, those who do not believe that they are in need of a dead and bloody Savior will hate you because they hated the Savior who they bloodied and killed. They want to see you dead, and many, if not most, don't even have the guts to kill you. So they will resort to slander. They'll murder your name. They are too jicking to actually carry out what's in their heart. So they'll just make up lies and slander about your name and who you are. 
As soon as the hearers of the gospel leave the teaching that teaches them that everything is riding on their action for Jesus, those who peddle this antichrist teaching will want to kill the messenger. For if no one listens to the Pharisees who hope in their works teaching, then their power is gone and all that they have are left with themselves. No more power, no more glory, no more popularity, no one coming to their temple if everyone leaves their show to run to Jesus instead. Make no mistake, the goal of the works righteous crowd is power. It is their personal power that they seek. That is why the message of the gospel is so offensive to them, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, not them and their power. The gospel is also offensive because it bestows to the prostitute, the deadbeat dad, the mean girl, the rude, the dirty, the bully, the dictator, the drunkard, the chain smoker, the R-rated movie watcher, the potty mouth, the dishonest, the rock and roll lover, the addict, the immoral, the glutton, the gossip, the terrorist, the politician, the tax collector, the slanderer, the sinner, all of the benefits of Christ. The same benefits that are given to you and to me in Christ for free. The Christian who has served God and neighbored their whole life has the same Jesus, his body and blood for them, has been given also to the worst sinner they know. Side note, if you are not the worst sinner you know, you have not yet begun to consider the depth of your sin. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to confess your neighbor's sins. It does say to confess your sins and to love your neighbor. The offense of the gospel is that it is needed by all and that it is given to all. That is the offense of the gospel, is that everyone needs it and everyone's been given it. Amen. To the ones who do not believe that they are sinners in need of a savior, it is offensive. There are those who would not call themselves Christians who are offended by the idea of being a sinner. And there are also those who would call themselves Christians who are offended by the idea of being a sinner still. It is also offensive to us older brothers who see the father lavishly give to the prodigal all his benefits when we have been sweating out loyally, faithfully, the whole time we think. We demand that they prove that they belong to God by their works and yet fail to see their good works even if they're standing right in front of our face. Pharisees are those who claim to worship God yet created their own man-made doctrines, man-made traditions, can have God himself stand right in front of him and look for ways to condemn him to death. They are the definition of lukewarm. Wait, lukewarm? That's haunted me. Being lukewarm, that scared me to death growing up. What if I am? What does that mean if I am? I thought this was being lukewarm, that Christians who do not show any action and zeal. Well, let's check and see what is going on in that famous passage about being lukewarm. In Revelation 3, 14 through 18, we read, To the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witnesses, the ruler of God's creation says this, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. If only you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and not hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. He's saying this to a church. You say I am rich, I have become very wealthy and need nothing. But you do not know that you are miserable, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness might not become public and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Look at the language here. Where else do we see these kind of references? They're a description of those who are lost, those that hope in their righteousness. And you see what the other gifts that Jesus said that he would give them, would they turn to him? They're his gifts. A white robe, that's his righteousness. To make a salve for eyes so we could see. So according to this then, lukewarm is a Christian who hopes in their works rather than in what Christ gives. Being lukewarm is not so much the lack of action, but the abundance of hope in one's own actions with no need of a savior. This looks like, yes, I am a Christian, and I know by my works that I am a Christian, and my works have proven and merited my salvation. It is a Christian who frowns at the idea that they need Jesus too. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I wish so-and-so was here because they need to hear this. What? I need to hear this. I need Jesus too. Just as much as the person who is hearing about Jesus for the very first time. That is the offense of the gospel, that it is needed by all and given to all. In the end, this is something that I believe, in the end, the great falling away from the faith will not be so much Christians no longer living like Christ, but rather Christianity will no longer be about Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Christians will present themselves as God's gift to the world rather than Christ. This one verse helps me so much that we read earlier in verse 12 where Peter says there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved did you catch that I saw something by Dan Price that I wanted to point out that he wrote in a blog and this I never I ran right past this part and I never noticed this before If you are needing or are struggling with assurance of your salvation, this is for you. He writes in reference to this verse, not can or may be saved, but in the name of Jesus, people must be saved. Peter is bringing home the point of the certainty of salvation in Christ. In the name of Jesus, salvation is not a possibility. It's not even a maybe or a potentially. It's an absolute certainty. It must happen. Christ has taken the sin of the world to himself and gifted that world his righteousness. In this, God has trapped himself in his promises and in the work of his son. Not accidentally, but intentionally. Those who cry out in the name of Jesus for salvation will be saved. All of them. God must save them. He has given himself no other options. Jesus is the rejected rock of all salvation. Outside of him, none will be saved. In his name, none will be lost. What about when you feel faithless? Jesus remains faithful. What about when you sin? Jesus is your advocate. The good news Peter is preaching is that in Christ, God has given himself no way out of saving you. Salvation isn't a possibility outside of Jesus, and it isn't a possibility inside of him either. It is an absolute certainty. It's a trap. 
Jesus, remember me when you're in your kingdom. Snap goes the trap. Done. Today you will be with me in paradise. Sir, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Snap, it's a trap. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised with Christ in his resurrection, a good conscience before God, granted. Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Take, drink, this is my blood given for the forgiveness of your sins. Snap, it's a trap. Faith in the words that Jesus has given to you for the forgiveness of sins. One of the consequences of the gospel is not a future possibility that your sins are forgiven, but a present reality that your sins are forgiven already. Notice that they had nothing else to say other than stop preaching the gospel. I pray that the Holy Spirit would rise up a generation of people who cannot stop speaking about the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray that the Lord guards us from the desire to speak about anything more than Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. The same message over and over and over, forever and forever and forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Behold, the Lamb that was slain for you and for me. Notice that in Revelation. If you catch that Revelation, the climax is that a lamb that was slain comes before the throne and opens the scroll. It's the same wonderful good news from beginning to end that Jesus has died for me and died for you. All of this points to Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. Why do we make it something different? In other ways, yeah. Why do we make it anything different? You want revival? I've got good news. Revival has already happened 2,000 years ago on the cross of Christ. Let that spread like wildfire. Because Jesus lives, we too shall live. If better living happens because of that, awesome! But better living is not the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the main point. Christ has promised that good works in Christ will happen. That's his pay grade. I trust him. He says he's going to do it. I take trust that he's going to do it. We are now free to go love our neighbor with no fear. For the worst thing that the world can do to us is to take our life. And to be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. Every other religion in the world will teach you how to live a better life. Encourage you to live a better life. Encourage you to do good things to each other. And we fail at that. Even when we do not fail but excel at living better, how is that any different than any other religion in the world? Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. That is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. It is what Christianity is all about. To make it anything else is literally anti-Christianity. To teach a hope in anything or anyone else other than Christ is literally anti-Christ. I present Christ before you for the forgiveness of sins based off his life, death, and resurrection for you, you are forgiven. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with you on favor and give you peace.